But probably the weirdest thing is that playtesting often isn't fun. Yeah, um, yeah. Because we, we sit there and I say we, we set aside 45 minutes, but in that 45 minutes, sort of 20 to 25 minutes of that is actual gameplay. And 20 to 25 minutes of that is making notes, discussing how things are meant to work, particularly early on in the games. Howdy friends, Craig here. I have a chance to sit down with another Insider Insight episode, this time with Lewis Clark from TT Combat. They're probably best known for their games Carnevale, Drop Fleet Commander, Drop Zone Commander, and Rumble Slam. Not to mention their amazing MDF terrain. It's really neat to learn the process that uh, Lewis and his team go through to create that amazing terrain. From sketches to design to uh, the final laser cuts. We also learn kind of the insider insight on design, both for miniature games like Carnivale, but also for larger games like the Drop Fleet Commander and stuff that is built for competitive play like Drop Zone Commander. I'll warn you ahead of time, it's going to be very difficult to listen to this episode and not go to their website and explore some of these games. There's such a wide variety. Uh, you've got the insights after listening to how they were made and the ideas behind them. And uh, that Carnivale book is probably one of the prettiest rule books I've ever seen. So sit back and learn a little bit from behind the curtain on how to make terrain and how to design games. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Craig here on the third floor for another Insider Insights episode of Tabletop Talk. Now, today I'm picking the brain of Lewis Clark. He's the head of design over at TT Combat. It's a company I'm sure that many of you have heard of. In his four years at TT Combat, he worked on the graphic designs of MDF Scenery, collaborated with David Lewis and Gav Thorpe on game designs, and you can see his fingerprints on games like Rumble Slam, Carnival, and a new edition of Drop Zone Commander, all games we're going to cover and talk about today. So, Lewis, welcome. Welcome to the third floor. Thanks very much, Craig. Thanks for having me. So I'd be curious, um, you know, for most new guests, I like to find out, you know, how you became a gamer. So there was a day that you knew nothing about tabletop gaming whatsoever, and then you found out about it. So how did you discover tabletop gaming? That, that was that day was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's probably 20, 23, 24 years ago. Um, I was 10 years old. Uh, my next door neighbor brought back some uh Warhammer, i think he brought back some uh plague marines the old plastic plague marines from an independent store um just in a couple of cities away uh this before the day when we even knew that games workshop existed um and yeah from there i was pretty much hooked for yeah all the rest of the time after that i've played uh a lot of 40k um over the years a lot of fancy battles um more time blood bowl yeah you name it any games workshop games i played um from there yeah. I've, I've dabbled a little bit into infinity and x-wing um and drop fleet commander actually interestingly enough before i worked for tt combat as well oh no kidding so you were playing drop feet even before you came on yeah my um my gaming group sort of 
got stuck in with the Kickstarter and I joined them a little bit. Um, it was at the time I'd moved from my regular gaming group in Bristol down to Cornwall. Um, so it was sort of, yeah, dip my toe in and I was getting ready to get sort of really stuck in before I joined up with TT Combat. <laughs> That's interesting. So that'll be the next step, right? So you, um, as a kid, you discover tabletop gaming, you come into the ecosystem the way that most people do through Games Workshop. <laughs> then it sounds like you start exploring outside of Games Workshop yeah. and looking at games outside of Games Workshop. When did TT Combat come on the radar? Um, well, I, I say I made, I made a move to Cornwall. Um, previously from that, I, I was at university and previously from that, I did my, of course, classic stint working for Games Workshop for a while. <laughs> um, of course, working in the retail. Um, but yeah, after I moved to Cornwall, um, we, me, me and my now wife, we, we worked in uh, restaurants and things for a little while after university. Um, uh, we took a trip to America for three months, um, toured around, and then as, after we came back, um, we tried to find jobs in different places. And we we settled on the fact that we probably wouldn't be able to get jobs in Cornwall um, because I don't know how much you know about the UK, but it, it's it's not it's not the busiest place in the world down here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, sort of fresh from uni, we wanted to do something, yeah, um, with our degrees and sort of committed to going somewhere else. Um, and in that time, sort of job searching, um, I found out about TT Combat and went on the website and I was like, oh, these are great. They had some really good MDF kits, which I ordered um, and started putting together at home. And then literally about a couple of days later, after I got them in the, in the mail, I saw that they had a job advertisement. So I sent this really geeky email to them saying hi i've just bought some of your kits can i please have a job <laughs> which worked apparently <laughs> at least got you the interview it sounds yeah. like yeah so um they they hired me in actually to work on the laser cutters um like just actually doing the mdf laser cutting and when i got there on the first day they came up to me and said i you have you got a graphic design degree? And I was like, yes, yes. And a few, several years experience. Um, I, I can do these programs. And they went, great. We've got this game Rumble Slam. Um, and we've hit a wall with it where none of us know how to do the sort of production stuff for it. I was like, oh, okay. Um, well, let me come up from the lasers, get someone to cover me. And yeah, that sort of snowballed from there. So that's interesting. So it was, um, even though you had the background, your way in was basically sounds like manual labor, right? Doing yeah, machine work. Much. Um, which is something that even now today we still do with with every new person that comes into the design department particularly i make sure that they've got background in delays cutting background in resin and assembly everything there so that everyone knows how the company works yeah i can imagine that, that that's a big deal um now when you came on with tt combat um obviously they were working on rumble slam <laughs> um obviously they had terrain um which is what i'm the most familiar with um and what i associate with tt combat um and i own a an obscene amount of your terrain um <laughs> what other games were were in um in your uh under your roof at that point was it just rumble slam or well so at that point they'd at TT Combat, they'd been to Kickstarter with Rumble Slam, and it was yeah in development but not ready to go. Um, and then they bought Carnivale and another game called Home Raiders from a company called Vesperon Games. Um, and they sat on that for a little while. I came in, and uh, a lot of the sculpts had re been remade at that point, but it was still very, very early stages. Um, it was very much they were treading water with it, trying to find out what they wanted to do. I've been calling it Carnival. Is it, is it should be should it be Carnivale? Um, I mean, don't let me tell you how to say Italian words. <laughs> <laughs> you know better than I do. <laughs> 
we've we've been told it's Carnivale, but Carnivale. Oh, okay, fine. well that's that's easy enough. Um, so y- you start work on Rumble Slam. Um, and had you been exposed to Carnivale at that point, or not at all? No, okay. very little. I mean, the, at, the, at that time there were. Oh, there are three, four of us in the design room in total. Um, so anything that came in from sculptors, we all saw. Um, but other than that, there wasn't. There really wasn't that much work being done on it at that point. It was all sort of full steam ahead to get Rumble Slam ready and done. Right, right. Very interesting. Well, guys, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back from this break, I want to talk to Lewis about kind of the process of making MDF terrain. Um, I know a lot of you um, listeners out there use MDF terrain. You've seen the boards here on the third floor um, and seen several of the uh, 3D, uh, the train. Uh, my introduction to uh, Carnivale, how I found out about them is I started buying the train for it, for Malifaux, um, and then realized, wow, there's a game. And I kept hearing good stuff about it. So uh, we'll talk about terrain. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Howdy friends, Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3 by 3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com. That's with one M. Or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So I've bought MDF terrain from several different companies. Um, and uh, some companies I've bought more terrain from and other companies I would never buy another kit from them. Um, because not only does you know the final product need to look good, but MDF, I've seen it designed to be built in a good way and in a terrible way. Um, and not only in the process of building it um, being uh, unnecessarily difficult, but once built, how sturdy it ends up being. And Lewis, part of the reason that I have bought several more kits from you after buying my first kit is I really enjoy how you guys lay everything out and how sturdy things are when they're built. But I want to learn about or get some insight on the process itself. So a building does not exist. 
right? Nobody's ever drawn it. Nobody like where does the initial idea for a kit come from? It really depends on what the kit is for, to be honest. Um, so for a lot of the Streets of Venice range, which you you said you use for Malifaux, which is yep. good, um, a lot of those I designed myself. Um, but then we've got sci-fi gothic, we've got industrial hive, things for 40k, things for Necromunda, um, things for Drop Zone Commander. They all come from different sorts of places. Um, so I think the, the very first step is what does a game need? Okay. And, what 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 scenery is most useful for that game what does it what are we missing that we don't have already um so i'll, I'll probably focus on streets of venice because that's the that's what i'm most familiar with um so for streets of venice it's designed for carnivale primarily um which means that it needs to be able to be climbable needs to be able to be sturdy needs to have flat roofs for walking on the top of um and it needs to facilitate ways of moving around the board um, so we start off with an idea of what we want. So a uh, piece that I've recently designed, we had an issue where a lot of the games, if someone wasn't very good at climbing, they struggled to get up to the rooftops. So I've designed a few pieces which have sort of staircases that go all the way up. Um, so we see something that we need in the game and yeah, try and figure out a way to do that. Uh, so that's probably the first thing is making sure that everything is deliberately designed for a game. So it sounds like functionality might be kind of the first thing. So the 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 need, the game mm-hmm. need, and then that it's literally rules functional. Yeah, absolutely. Because we can make the most beautiful things in the world, but if you can't play on them, then yep. they're pointless, essentially, for what we do. Um, so yeah, that's the first thing. Make, make sure everything's functional in whatever way that is. Um, so we start off with that and then decide what it should look like. And that, that's a lot down to the designers. And we've got a few, we've got um, four people at the moment in the design team that design MDF scenery primarily. I dip in every now and again, um, <laughs> whenever I feel like it. Um, and I sort of, we, we tend to sort of discuss the brief, discuss what needs to happen. They'll go away, sketch some things up and then come back and say, look, these are some ideas and we'll say yes yes no yes no um whatever's best whatever's most useful and whatever looks good um and from there they go in and start the actual design process and there's a lot of freedom for what people want to be doing so our briefs tend to be um we need uh, a new set for industrial hive um and so i'll go and say we need something that uh uses loads of pipeways and that's it so as many things you can with pipeways and so i'm gonna come back with a sort of basic sketch of how the pipes should go together um, and they say okay well we need five six different kits for that so knock yourself out right right now i would be curious to know from the artist's perspective when you're when you're concepting out um i mean is that literally sketch pad and pencils and you just start you know sketching from there or is that being done digitally a little bit of both. It depends on who's doing it. Um, okay. I, I tend to start off digitally and I, I'll go into, I, we, we use SketchUp quite a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I'll go in there and just block out shapes. And it's literally just cubes and cubes and circles and whatever it needs to be to sort of get out the basics. But some of our other designers, um, we got a designer called Ben. He's a very good artist. And he'll sit down with his sketch pad and come back after half an hour and have a whole page of sort of sketches. Um, but yeah, it, it depends on what everyone's more comfortable with. Some people have a great idea straight off and go straight into it. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, it really depends on what everyone is, how everyone works best. So for look and feel, um, is a lot of it just coming from the back of the brain or are you getting on Google images or, you know, I, I'd be curious to know aesthetically, um, once you've got the functionality piece together, you've sketched out maybe some rough designs, but things like the detail, the overall feel and look, um, where do you guys tend to find those? It's so different depending on what we're designing. So, um, 
recently uh, Scott has been designing some industrial stuff and so we both made up because we're working remotely at the moment we made up sort of a huge sort of Pinterest board of uh, just random sort of um, industrial sort of looking designs so power stations and sort of abandoned places things like that um, but then for like when I'm designing Streets of Venice range uh, I've got a bookmark of Google Earth pinpointed in Venice so I just go around the streets and see some of the things for what I want to be making um, yeah, which, yeah it, it, it really depends on what people uh, are making. So it seems obvious to me for for the games that TT Combat produces, right? So making terrain for Dropship Commander, for Cannavale, all of that makes a ton of sense for me. But you guys have terrain that's outside of, of your game's uh, uh, corral. So w- when, does, when do you decide to make a terrain that's not game-specific for one of your games? Um, when does that decision-making happen? That's most of the time, to be honest. <laughs> we, oh, we yeah. To have, yeah, yeah, pretty much the whole time. Um, we we know that Games Workshop Games are the most popular. Um, so we try to make it so that at least 50% of, of our designs are for 40K, for Fantasy, for yeah Necromander or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And then from there onwards, we sort of divide them up for the rest of them. So we try to make it so it's about 50% Games Workshop, 25% for our games and 25% for other games. Um depending on what's coming out at the time um so we've had we've had the team going through with some we call it cyber terrain but let's be honest it's necron terrain um <laughs> for, the, for the new edition of 40k they, sure. they've been sort of all hands on deck doing yeah new necron terrain um because that's what's yeah really big at the moment um one of the great things about designing mdf is that it's not got a huge lead time on it it's one designer who makes the product takes it down to the lasers it gets cut and they put it together so we mm-hmm. can work quite quickly depending on what's going on in the in the outside world for miniature design it takes a fair amount longer uh, but yeah we can be quite reactionary with it so we we tend to work in quite a large buffer of time um so we've got designs that we've sort of previewed sort of six months ago which we're now getting to the point where we can release but then there's other things where we go oh there's, there's been a surprise announcement so let's make something for that and release it next week so are you mass producing? So once, let's say, design is done, everybody signed off on it. This is a new product uh, for us. Um, do you then just use in-house lasers and just produce a shipload of them? Or is it on demand? Or how does that work from a from a uh, pipeline perspective? One, one of the most interesting things I think about TT Combat is that all of our production is done in-house. That's uh, nice. Not just the MDF, but the resin as well. Everything. Oh, wow. Produced. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. Everything's in Cornwall. We've got a big old warehouse um and you can go outside and you'll walk through people yeah, assembling things people pouring resin people cutting things on lasers well our, our design room is directly above the laser room so you can hear when everyone goes on lunch because it goes quiet all of a sudden <laughs> um, so yeah we, we tend to mass produce everything at the moment because of covid restrictions we've been socially distancing everyone in the department yeah. so there's been the lasers been up and running but because we have fewer people working it's been a bit more reactionary um and the shelves are getting a little bit low um but yeah we're getting there at the moment we're, we're expecting we've got um 18 laser cutters in the warehouse um and we're expecting another 12 laser cutters in in the next two weeks from today from data recording Wow. No kidding. Yeah. So, well, that's a sign of uh, good things, especially with uh, with the lockdowns. It's good to hear that um, that there's growth there. Yeah. So you came on to TD Combat, had never designed an MDF kit before. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what surprised you? What was what was something you hadn't thought would be a challenge that ended up being a big challenge in that process? 
you know the the strangest and this is going to sound like i'm not very smart at all but the <laughs> hardest thing the hardest thing about designing mdf is it's 2d and interesting it's it's an obvious thing that it is 2d but every now and again even now several years on you get sometimes you forget that it's 2d and you, you'll design a piece that's you know, sort of loops around and it's circular and goes up a certain amount and you're like oh no hang on i can't do that because everything has to be flat everything has to join right. 90 degrees um so that takes a real real big amount of getting used to and it, it again it seems like a weird thing because that's the whole deal with mdf but yeah, you're just so used to designing things in 3D and making sure they all work. You forget that actually everything has to attach to everything else. 90 degrees can only go one direction. So in the design process, um, I'm trying to figure out whether you work forwards or backwards. So the end product is going to be a bunch of boards that are mm -hmm. that have been laser cut, right? And then those boards will have to be assembled into the final product. As you're going through and designing to get to that final product, are you thinking about layout and building and you know how it's all going to work together as you go through that process or do you end up with the final product and work backwards it's a bit of both so when when i first started um the entire process was done in 2d there was no 3d okay. design at all which i came in with my interview brought my little laptop and said look i've made this on sketchup what do you think and they're like oh we we don't do it in, in 3d and i was like well wait. Sorry, how do you do it? Said, oh. <laughs> oh, well, we design it in 2D. We get it cut and we see if it goes together. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I don't have a laser cutter at home, so I can't test that. So for me, it was obvious to do in 3D. Um, and over the yeah. last sort of few years, we've transitioned into making things 3D first. And then we sort of go through a process of flattening it all down. Um, as you develop more your own style and as you're with the company for longer and doing more of the, of the work you get more of an idea of what will flatten better and what will take up more space um, so everything goes on the same size sheet uh, we have a sprue size which everything has to fit on there occasionally we can go a little bit bigger if we've got baseboards and things but we tend to keep everything that size um, it fits in boxes better it posts better which means that we can cut the prices down for the shipping which is ideal um, but yeah you're sometimes a little bit restricted with that so sometimes someone will design something i'll be like that's that's really cool but it's too big for a sheet um but if you cut three inches off it then it'll be perfect right um, so yeah we do have sort of upper limits of what you can do interesting interesting um for final production then um I, i'd like to I, so can you just walk me through maybe the most one of the most recent designs that you did um, for Streets of Venice? What's the how does it all finish off? So I get it. I do have a sense of how it starts. I get a sense mm -hmm. of inspirations that you use. You put it up together in Sketch 3D. You flatten it out. What are the last steps before it, it shows up on the website? So after you've after you got it 3D, you yeah you flatten it down. You've got your sprues. You send the sprues down to lasers and they get cut. Um, they come up and we do our sort of first test cut and. Fingers crossed the first test cut works and goes together fine, but 99 times out of 100, it doesn't. And, and you need to right. go back and tweak a little bit. Um, after you've got, after you've done your first round of tweaks, we, we tend to have crits all the time. Um, everybody in the department is able to chime in whenever they want. Um, everyone's in quite close proximity. Um, at the moment, we're a bit further away from each other, but sure. all in the same office. So you can say from the other side of the room, hey, that doesn't fit together properly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, everyone's completely open to all suggestions. We all know that 
you work better as a team you work better with input from other people and there's so many times when i have something i think yes this is brilliant and someone will come along and go will a will a 40 mil base fit in there and i'm like oh no no it won't okay i'll go back and i'll make it a little bit bigger so a 40 mil base will fit brilliant um so after after we've done the crits it tends to go back to lasers it comes back up um our first round of production cuts um we we go in with a marker pen and sort of scribble on things and say you move this this way get rid of this add some damage there um and the second round will come up and hopefully on the second round it's correct it will go together and that's great um it goes up to joe and joe does the photographs for us and then it goes up on the website um, wow we de- we tend to have a very final um, laser review where the laser department also gets a say in how things go together so if something's going to them and they've realized that actually this is probably going to cause a fire because there's too many lines on this little bit if something's a bit too close then there's yep. a chance it's going to set on fire or they cut something and this bit always falls out um they get a say because we got to make their jobs as easy as possible um it's not fun working down in the lasers with that noise all the time sure so making, making sure. sure it's easy for them is the best way um so yeah they get a say i get a say and then it goes to sort of get photographed in production yeah, and I would imagine, I mean, really what uh, the laser people are, are also doing is doing some quality control for the end, end customer, too, oh, right? Yeah, because, yeah. Um, you know, I've had kits not from you guys show up and there's four pieces missing from it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because of that wasn't thought about um, yeah. in that process. Um, so a s- silly step, but I'd be curious, do you have somebody that does the instructions or is that done by the designer or how do the instructions get made? It's done by the designer. Um, okay. And it's always a bit of a grudge that no one ever wants to do the instructions because <laughs> they finished their kit and they know how it goes together, but no, tough. You have to do it. Um, yeah. Previously, when everything was designed in 2D, it was then taken into Blender um, in 3D to make the instructions. And Got uh, it. Blender isn't the best program for that. Blender is a fantastic tool um, and very, very powerful for certain things, but it's not good for making instructions. So that's what I think. I would imagine sort of... SketchUp is a much better program. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So there's a lot of animosity towards making instructions before, but with SketchUp, it's super easy. You get your 3D p- um, final piece and um, you tend to sort of pull one piece away, color it in and see where it goes and then move on to the next step. Um, but a product isn't finished until instructions right. are done and up on the website. That's the yep. cool. All right. So last question before we take a break. Um, what is a design that got rejected by you that, that you still kind of go, oh, man, I really wish we could have figured that out or didn't get rejected. Is there a design somewhere that uh, we never saw uh, that you still have a soft spot? Oh, for? there's loads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there, there are quite a few. Um, there's some that have been up on the website and then get gone taken down again actually which is actually a really weird situation but tends to happen sometimes when it goes up and it turns out that it just takes so long to cut and there's so many different oh. elements to it that it's never gonna yeah never gonna work um there's a piece that i've created in the last sort of year um which hasn't seen the light of day yet which is so for reference, a sprue is um, about a sheet of A4, which is um, for American yeah. size, just bigger than paper, the letter size. Um, and there's a kit that I've made, which is 500 sprues. Whoa! Um, yeah. Uh, it's quite big, and I can't, I can't <laughs> say exactly what it is because it's still a bit of a secret. And I'm, I'm still hoping, fingers crossed, that it might see the light of day at some point. But this is one that I've been sat at home in my in my evenings going, yeah, it's going to be cool. This oh. is going to be cool. 
Oh boy, you've piqued my interest. That sounds amazing. <laughs> 500 boards. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I'm going to have to think about that a little bit. <laughs> now, the other part of me is like, who the hell is going to put that together? <laughs> yeah. That, that's a hot pot. Oh, and not to mention the shipping, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's funny only. yeah exactly uh yeah you can get in pick up um or we're gonna send it to you in seven different packages that's funny <laughs> all right guys what we're gonna do we're gonna take a break when we get back from this break i want to talk about a game that i have heard about um i have visually seen it so it's not like i didn't know it existed but i really don't know a whole much about it and that's rumble slam um so we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk a little bit about rumble slam we'll be right back Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So like I said, uh, Rumble Slam is a game I've heard of before, um, and I wanted, of the three games we're going to talk about from TT Combat, it was the first one I wanted to cover because it's one I knew the least about. Um, so Lewis, where did the concept, well, first of all, for those that don't know what Rumble Slam is, what is the elevator pitch? This is Rumble Slam. Um, Rumble Slam, the game of fantasy wrestling. I mean, it's, it. <laughs> it, it's as simple as that. It really is. Um, it's orcs, dwarfs, trolls. Um, yeah. Even some humans every now and again, um, ogres and things in a wrestling ring, fighting it out um, and doing wrestling things. It's exactly what that sounds like. That's cool. And it's not like Greek wrestling. We're talking about professional wrestling. Oh, no, we, right? we talk about WWF 90s style wrestling. <laughs> That's great. As brightly colored as you possibly can. Yeah. Uh, where did the where did the original idea get born? Um, so this is one that the big boss of TT Combat, Louis, um, he came up with it and it was as simple as what about a game of fancy wrestling? I think it starts off very much as, as what about blood bowl, but wrestling. Um, and there's a lot of comparisons you can draw thematically with that. Um, but if, as we get into it, I think you'll probably see that it's, it's completely different. So the boss man says, Hey, let's make pro wrestling blood bowl, right? We'll take the concept of a fantasy sports game that we're, that we've seen a million times. We're going to apply it to professional wrestling. Um, was there any concept in, in his head about how it would work mechanically or anything like that? Or is it just, Hey, here's go make this. Um, it was a little bit of both. Um, it was very much, this is my idea. Go and make my idea. Um, but there's a few sort of guidelines to it from what I know about from the early days. Um, and these are things that have come up more and more in recent years is that it has to be small and it has to be quick. Okay. Um, so it was very much designed as a game that you can play in the pub. Um, or that you can play at the end of a gaming evening. Um, so if you're waiting for your friends to finish a bigger game um, and you've got sort of half an hour, 45 minutes, Rumble Slam's the game to do it. You need sort of half a dozen models maximum, um, and it'll take, yeah, between half an hour and 45 minutes to play. 
That's and nice. It's a one foot by one foot mat. Um, it's a tiny little thing. You can get we we do MDF rings that you can actually yeah get all the ropes and everything. It, it's, <laughs> and you will want to do that because there's nothing better than bouncing your models off the ropes across the ring. Um, but yeah, it was designed to be small and fast. Um, so when you th- look at it uh, from a mechanical sense, is there is there certain highlights? Um, so things that uh, people that uh, would find interesting about the game. Well, if you like wrestling, you'll like Rumble Slam, basically. Okay. That, this, is, this is how we sell it at shows. Um, if you have even a passing interest in wrestling and know what you know, know what a turnbuckle is and know what it looks like when you do a clothesline bouncing off the ropes, you can do all of that stuff in the game. Um, it's exactly what you'd expect it to be. There's a few sort of... We, we, we try to make sure there are some key rules in every game to make sure that, that that's sort of the hook that brings people in. Um, with Rumble Slam, there's a lot of freedom of movement um, to get stuck in quickly. There's none of this sort of set things up in the first turn and then everything kicks off in the second turn or third turn onwards. From the first turn, you can get stuck in and yeah, start punching people. Um, and then there's also the crowd pleasers. Crowd pleasers are this sort of unique mechanic to the game. Every single wrestler has a unique crowd pleaser, and they can use the power of the crowd to sort of boost themselves up. So they can gain <laughs> benefits in their stats, or they can perform extra special moves, that sort of thing. Um, and the crowd are like the crowd is the third player or sort of fifth player, depending on how many people you've got in the ring. Um, they're the sort of extra player in the game. Um, and everything sort of revolves around them. There's a special dice called the crowd dice, um, and it has cheer, boo, and blank. Um, so okay. generally you're hoping for cheers unless you're a heel in which case you're hoping for boos no one hopes that the crowd ignores them if the crowd ignores you that's, that's the worst that can happen um, and there are so many different things that sort of go off the crowd dice um, to see how the game progresses because you're not just playing the game and you're not just wrestling you're it's sports entertainment you you, you need to make sure that you're appealing to the crowd as well yeah, that adds a whole other element to it, and it's, it's super thematic. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, back back when there were shows, um, let's say that you're at a show, Lewis, and uh, some random dude, uh, some random uh, gal walks into the booth and says, hey, what's this, and points to Rumble Slam. Uh, you do your demo of it, and they buy it. They walk away. I'd be curious to know what you have seen to be the hook. So when someone walks out of that booth and has bought Rumble Slam, what have you noticed to be the what hooks them? So I think probably the biggest thing that gets people involved and gets people thinking, oh, okay, this is a game that I can actually play, is that not only is it small, but you can play with every single miniature in the range. Um, oh, we okay. have we have factions. Each of our um, wrestlers belongs to a certain casino, um, and th- there's loads of different casinos from uh, Kaiser's Palace, which is sort of Greek themed, and there's humans and halflings and things. Um, and then you've got uh, things like uh, Rolling Bones, which is a cross between skeletons wearing mankinis and orcs and goblins <laughs> and things. It's, it, yeah, it gets a bit weird. Um, so every every wrestler belongs to a casino, but you can mix and match as much as you like. If you stay within the casino, same casino, you get a, a sponsorship bonus. You could be sponsored sponsored by like Orca-Cola, who you drink Orca-Cola and you get a bit fighty, or you can be sponsored by Eagle Airways, and once per match, the Eagles will swoop in and move your models around, that sort of thing. Nice! <laughs> um, but if you want to, you can just pick any model that you want. And there's uh, there's rookies in the game, so you can get like Orcs and Goblins sort of basics, but then there's superstars as well, who are the named characters. And um, for reference, it's about 50-50 of the model range. So if we've got around 50-60 uh, rookies and about 50-60 superstars. The superstars oh, are like wow. your special characters. They're, they're a bit more powerful, but they cost more in, well, it's points, but we call it dosh, how much dosh it costs to actually recruit your wrestlers. 
I don't think I realized that you had that many miniatures out there. Oh, That's yeah. a lot of minis. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, Lewis, how about for you? So, obviously, Rumble Slam was kind of being formed, and it was sounded like it was about mid-form when you came on. Um, though you played a lot of games, uh, you weren't a game designer by by uh, by trade at that point. How involved now do you get? in in the actual design of the game or, or are you pretty much you know kind of the art director uh piece of this so for for our design team we've got i said we've got about four four or five people that do the mdf design and we've got about the same number doing game design um, okay but all of us have other jobs at the same time within the company so i do graphic design within the company but also writing and um community posts and all that sort of stuff and we've got a web designer who also does sort of game testing all of that Mm -hmm. um so everybody gets a say um but i sort of i I lead the direction of where the game's going to go so i say i want this casino next it's going to be um yeah we're we're going to have a south of the border themed casino um right come out come out recently um and it's going to have skeletons that are sort of covered in day of the dead paint Um, nice yeah (laughs) we're going to have things like that and we're going to have a a pinata that explodes when you punch it things stuff like that and then (laughs) i'll pass it off to someone if, if they've got particular ideas of how things work um but everybody sort of pitches in um, so a, cu- a couple of weeks ago, I was playtesting Rumble Slam. We've got um, new things coming out. So I sat there with Chris, our web designer, and we yeah, we sort of set aside 45 minutes at the end of the day to do a bit of playtesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, ev- everybody has something to do. Um, yeah, I, I sort of lead the overall design of them. Got it. And, and what is, if you had to think of one thing that, um, if, if we went back in time, Lewis, before you started getting involved at games at that level, right? So before you came on to TT Combat, what is something that you would have told old Lewis that he wouldn't believe about game design? So you're like, you know, th- this is something that a listener would just does not realize of, about the process you just talked about. Um, probably that you've got to play it just so much. Yeah. Just so, so much. And everybody knows that playtesting happens and you've got to play as much as you can. Um, but probably the weirdest thing is that playtesting often isn't fun. Yeah, um, yeah, because we we sit there and I say we we set aside forty five minutes, but in that forty five minutes, sort of twenty twenty five minutes of that is actual gameplay, and twenty twenty five minutes of that is making notes, discussing how things are meant to work, particularly early on in the games, um, particularly or early, early on in development of the rules. Um, we had uh, when we, we'll get onto it in a bit, but when we were playtesting Carnivale, we had um, two of the team who we said that we've we've got the this uh, starter intro book of scenarios and we need this to be perfect so you've got two weeks where you do nothing else but play carnivale and they came out of afterwards and they were like can we do anything else can we, can we go to the lasers can we can we pour resin for a bit just any other work <laughs> the literally the last thing i want to do is look at a miniature right now <laughs> But one, that's of, one, of things, one of the things that's great about tt working for tt combat is we've got four main games so if you do get a little bit like um, drawn out one of them you can switch to something else and there there are very few times very few days when i'm at work when i've not got three different games on the go at any one time yeah yeah um and you know talking to other game designers lewis um it, i've you know we think about play testing we think about you know the beta testing right and and from my understanding that's a very late stage in, in the process that there's just so much work and so much play that happens long before you get to the we're going to have outside play testers you know go into it um and the one thing that i have heard more than once and i'd be curious to know um your thoughts on this when a gamer hears play testing especially a competitive gamer, what they, what they hear is balance, 
right? Mm -hmm. So as a player, lots of players say, you know, playtesting is about balancing the game. But I've heard from several designers that I've had on the show, Lewis, that that's really not the first thing that's thought of, that there's so many other considerations from playability, from fun is the biggest one that I hear Mm -hmm. about is that you're playtesting to see if people are having fun and enjoying themselves. Where does, where does balance fit into your priority list as a designer? Um, it's a really tricky one to get balance right, generally speaking. Um, and balance is different depending on what game it is. So in Rumble Slam, making a new superstar, to be balanced, every single superstar has to be OP. Yes. That's sort of the rules in Rumble Slam. Yeah. If everything, we, we do the sort of Incredibles route of it, that if everyone's super, no one is. Um, mm-hmm. So Rumble Slam very much fits into that. But then a game like Drop Zone Commander, which is much more focused on competitive play, balance is much more important. Um, but it comes, balance comes after thematics for us, generally. Right. Um, so something has to feel right and if it feels right then we make it balanced a really good example is a couple of weeks ago we did new balance pass for drop zone commander um, and we've got uh, a tank which has a ridiculously massive chain gun on top um, like a twin chain gun which looks like it does so much damage um, but the first pass of it we did gave it sort of two dice to roll and it was balanced it worked all right but it didn't feel right Right. So we went back and said, okay, let's make this gun so much worse, but give it eight shots instead. Um, and now it's, we, we we like it. It's a bit, you look at it and you go, oh, well, that's, that's unbalanced. But when you actually come to play it, we think it's, it's a lot better for that. Yep. Yep. No, that's very cool. Well, speaking of drop zone commander, I want to talk about that. So let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about a game that um, is, I, I, there's like, I've got a short list of games um, that, uh, Everybody I talk to that plays it says it's a great game. Uh, everybody should be playing it, but everybody's not playing it. And Armada is one of them. You heard me talk about Armada on the show as the one of the best games nobody's playing. And Drop Zone Commander is another one that falls into that uh, thing. So I'm anxious to talk about it. We'll be right back. DZ Learguard here, creator of the M3E Crew Builder app. And I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars because supporting great content creators like them is one of the best ways to help grow this game. So to join me and the other floor heads, go to patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars. And we will see you there. What is it worth to you to get this podcast on a weekly basis? Is it worth a dollar a month? $5 a month? $20 a month? If you'd like to help support the work that we're doing here on Third Floor Wars, please go buy our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash thirdfloorwars. There you can pledge at any level, any dollar amount. Whatever you give us will help us put out quality content on a regular basis and hopefully make tabletop gaming a little bit better for you every week. Hey, need to give a special shout out to some of our newest patrons. A big thanks goes out to Bob Fletcher, Old Doc Fulton, Joseph Pye, Loke Walmo, Nicholas Prinzing, Dareth8952, Sven Hoffman, Mike Schmidt, and Peter DeArmas. The only reason we're able to put out content on a regular basis is because of you guys and gals. Thanks a ton. So from my understanding, Lewis, um, Drop Zone Commander is one of the games that TT Combat acquired, right? It was put out originally by another company and TT Combat bought it. Yeah, that's right. It was um, Drop Zone Commander and Drop Fleet Commander were put out by Hawk War Games, um, who 
did a great job with the games, but they overextended themselves um, when they did drop League Commander. They did a very, very successful Kickstarter, which was a lot more successful than they thought it would be. Um, yeah, overextended themselves. They're a, a much smaller company than us. Um, they did very, very good work for the amount of people they had. Um, but yeah, they, they, they basically weren't able to keep the business running. Um, so we stepped in and, well... We like to say saved. Um, yeah, <laughs> took over the IP. Um, we've still got the head designer, Dave Lewis, um, on staff, um, and he works oh, on nice. Drop Zone and Drop Fleet nonstop, hundred percent of the time. Um, but yeah, now now it's sort of we hope we we giving it a new lease of life. So um, first thing that's unique about it is the scale, right? It's 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 not your uh, your typical twenty eight millimeter scale. It's a smaller scale, correct? Yeah, Drop Zone is ten millimeter scale. Um, okay. So it's it's close to old Epic. Um, yeah. And it was it was created at a time when Epic had gone um, and Games Workshop wasn't focused on specialist games. Um, so they stepped in and brought Drop Zone Commander to the fore. Um, so, yeah, it, it's not a scale that's seen widely now. Like, mm-hmm. uh, we've got Titanicus nowadays, um, which sort of does a little bit the same, but it, it's a much sort of smaller, more compact game than Drop Zone. Drop Zone is about armies. Um, it's about larger armies taken to the battle. Um, and and it, it's it's a completely different game than what Epic used to be as well. It's all about fast-paced mobility, um, making sure that you've got enough transports to get things around. Yeah, and now we talk about Drop Zone and Drop Fleet. For people not familiar, what is the difference between the two? So they're the set, they're set in the same universe, um, which is set two hundred uh, to where we are twenty sixty odd in the future, um, and humanity's gone out to space, uh, settled some worlds, and alien race comes in and takes over Earth um, and takes over their sort of original settlements, and they're pushed out to the fringes, um, and then we skip two hundred years into the future after that to the actual modern day of Drop Zone, um, which sees humanity coming back. Um, fighting a war against the aliens uh drop zone is 10 million to scale it's it's all about tanks and infantry and walkers and things on the ground and then drop fleet pans out to orbit level and it's all about the spaceships dropping those ships down um and you can play them simultaneously but it'll be we we sort of say it's one turn of drop fleet commander is an entire game of drop zone oh wow um, that's sort of the time scale sort of difference for it uh that we've got rules published in which case you can do campaigns like branching narrative campaigns with alternating game types um but yeah they're, they're very different games it's very much a mass battle game for drop zone and drop fleet is more of a sort of standard fleet game got it now um you mentioned in the previous segment that um this has got a, a more of a competitive um target audience than say uh, rumble slam which sounds to have more of a kickback beer and pretzels type um mm-hmm. thing what is it about the drop zones that that make them geared for competitive play well they were originally designed back in a day when uh games workshop didn't care about competitive play at all um i i listened recently to your podcast with jamie um talking about that um, <laughs> yeah. which is great i was like yeah that, that, that's exactly the situation um and yeah they, they were very much geared towards that gap in the market um and they've got both got really tight rule systems to them um that really help that uh rumble slam is very much like i say it, it's beer and pretzels it's, it's yeah it's, well it's hot dogs and big point, pointy foam fingers i think is what it really is <laughs> um but yeah drop drop zone and drop fleet are very much more focused on competitive gameplay but within that it's the setting i think that people keep going back for um because it's a completely unique sci-fi setting it's very hard sci-fi um it's not that sort of 40k style oh it just works and anything you don't understand is space magic we we don't really have that <laughs> we, we've got some very sort of hard and fast rules 
with a, within our sci-fi um, and everything is quite specific into how it works and, and one of the great things about it is that it's quite logistical in the troops go in abcs abcs go in drop ships um and then if you pan out to sort of drop fleet commander you know the drop ships go in bulk landers and bulk landers go into strike carriers and yeah you can see the whole war process going on that's cool that's cool yeah i've heard from several people that the the rule set is very tight um Mm -hmm. and that uh that the original rule set um was good but it's only gotten better uh so hats off to you guys for being able to to, yeah to kind of keep that momentum going and uh it it is one of those games that turns heads too um Mm -hmm. because of the change the difference in the scale um the multi-levels that the game works at, I think is yep. very, very interesting. Um, so it's on my long list of games that I need to, <laughs> at some point, give a try. Um, we and speaking, yes, I know. Speaking of which, um, really the game that um, made me want to have Lewis uh, come on the show is Carnivale, because it's the one that I'm the most familiar with. Um, Lewis was good enough to send me the uh, rule book, which I have ingested. Um, and uh, I'm really anxious to talk about this game. Uh, so we'll be right back. Howdy friend, Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzoopsgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes. So as one of our listeners, um, one of my listeners reached out to me and said, hey, Craig, you know, what do you know about this game? You know, I was talking to him about it and I said, you know, I've heard it's a really great game and um, I've seen some of the miniatures for it. The miniatures are really unique and and pretty. And uh, and I told him I was uh, love the terrain for it. Um, And he's the one that uh, connected Lewis and I. Um, And Lewis was kind enough to have one the rule book sent to me for uh, for Carnivale. And um, I'm a little jaded. Um, I have seen many a rule book. Um, I have bought more than I want to admit um, and have flipped through several rule books. And I got to tell you, it has been a while since I have been wowed by the look of a book. Um, in this day and age to get a book that was just has this wow factor. So, and obviously it's a little hard on a podcast, but um, <laughs> if you, uh, if you go to the TT combat website and take a look at it, the artwork is so thematic. Um, I love the fact um, that you've got actual miniatures painted terrain all throughout the book. Um, that's, that's what draws us to play miniatures the, are those moments where you have painted miniatures and painted terrain and it really captures, but it's accented with it layout wise um just just gorgeous um so even not even getting into the rule set um i think anybody who loves miniatures just pick up the rule book um because the rule book is is for somebody who loves miniatures even if you don't end up you know playing the game i think it's worth it but um let's talk about the game so the first thing lewis is much like drop fleet this is one that you guys acquired so can you kind of give me how that happened yeah so this was um from a company called vesperon games um and vesperon hit a point where they had this game and they'd put 
it, it, it was um, a guy called David, David, David Esbury. David Esbury had put a lot of his own time into it. He was still working another job um, and it just started to take off. Um, but he ended up at a point where he wasn't able personally to see that happen. Um, he had a lot of different things going on and yeah, wasn't able to do what Carnivale needed. Um, so he got in talk, into talks with TT Combat and TT Combat bought the range from him. So they bought the IP um, and also all the miniatures and all of the molds. Um, and the molds have been run at this point for a few years and had seen better days, let's be honest. Um, yeah. There were, it was uh, old metal molds as well. Um, and the metal, metal miniatures are great and can get some fantastic detail. But if you don't look after the molds, then they tend to go downhill very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we uh, well, TT Combat ended up being faced with a bit of a dilemma as to what to do with the game um, because it had a very, a, quite a small but very rabid fan base for it. Um, the people that had seen it loved it, but mm -hmm. it wasn't appealing to... Uh, greater audience and the miniatures were yeah need, needed something doing to them to carry them on um so he made this decision to take the game back to kickstarter and basically reboot it um so the setting is the same um factions are all there um including additional factions that are added and didn't have all their models um and all of the models got remade from scratch um in wow Brazil. Um, yeah, so with between Rumble Slam and Carnivale, this is what started TT Combat producing everything in house. Um, they sort of looked at how what the best way is to do it, whether they could outsource, whether they could three D print everything, and it ended up being resin production was the best way to do it. So we ended up setting up an entire resin production department based on these two, sort of two games, um, which is great, really, really, really amazing for having something in-house particularly in the uk and particularly for us in cornwall um it's i'm sure unique there's there's nothing like this for sort of 500 miles well and it's kind of that games workshop model right where you you now control the entire supply chain and and you know we you want to talk about kickstarters um you know the ones that are struggle are, are struggling because they've out, had to outsource so much of it um but that's also a huge risk. So, I mean, hats off to you guys for working out because that's a big die to roll. Yeah. Um, it, it could we, we could not be talking right now because of that decision. Um, yeah, but obviously, it, obviously it worked out and there's um, tremendous benefits from it. So it's a skirmish level game. Um, aesthetically, it's got a little bit kind of that look and feel of Malifaux because it's kind of, you know, the um, it's not um, medieval times, but it's got a little bit of a fantasy feel to it. It's definitely thematic. So the streets of Venice, um, kind of that that look and feel of it. Um, but it's but it's there's a lot of unique things in it from a um, not only from a premise standpoint, but from a mechanic standpoint. And I want to talk about movement first, because that's the part that really uh, just grab me um, yeah. out of the gate. So can, can you talk to me about, you know, how movement works in the game? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a 3D game and Venice is the setting and Venice is everything about the game. Every, if you know anything about Venice, that is what the game is grounded on. Um, and we say it's really cheesy, but we say that when we went to Kickstarter, we sort of scrapped off most of the rules and built everything from the canal up um, <laughs> nice. to make something new. Yeah, cheesy, but it, it, it makes sense. Um, and movement is sort of the core mechanic of the game. Um, everything else is 
interesting and fun, but it's all about moving throughout Venice. And it's all about, we, we kind of make sure there's, there's sort of three distinct levels when you're playing the game. Um, most miniatures games, you tend to just stick with one level or occasionally you'll go up on sort of a balcony right. or something. Um, and there's a very good reason for that that we'll get into. It's hard to make 3D yeah. game. It's really, really hard. Um, so we have three levels. We have water, we have ground, and we have rooftops. Um, and different characters perform better at different things, but you can do everything you'd expect to on those different levels. Um, and it was important to us to make sure that being in the canal is worthwhile or detrimental, depending on who you are, and being on the right. rooftops is worthwhile or detrimental. Because uh, there are a lot of games where you can get into very specific situations which benefit you, but the benefit is nowhere near enough to make it worthwhile going out of your way to do it. Um, but yeah, the, the game's all about acrobatic movement parkour um within venice um it's tight streets it's climbing up it's running along walls it's jumping across roof, across rooftops diving into the canal um in rowing gondolas you, you can do all of that sort of stuff um, and that was sort of key to making sure the game felt right well and and and, and i think in, in many ways for me at least reading the rules because i haven't played yet but i read the rules um really defined the game for me and really is what kind of set it apart um and, and brought some new things to it um i'd be interested um the version that you acquired versus the version of the rules that got kickstarted and where you are now how much changed um so how different is the game from um kind of its original uh original concept um that he made versus what you guys are producing now so the biggest change that we had, and this is this is the design ethos that we took through from the start to the final product, was that the original game was great and thematic, but you spent most of your game reading the book. Um, Got it. There were, I think there were about 40 odd actions that you could take, and every <sighs> single action had a pass, uh, like a sort of pass state, fail state, critical state, and fumble state. Um, and it's very much, it was designed as sort of a, a bridge between um, role-playing games and tabletop games mm -hmm. um, but everything you did had a very specific action reaction um, and we wanted to make sure that we when we we're playing a game we we're playing the game we were playing against our opponent not playing against the rules um, so we took from 40 uh, 40 odd actions we took it down to about a dozen different actions yeah um, there were for example there were i think there were 15 different actions just for moving um, and wow. now i think we have two three maybe yeah um, yeah, so we made sure that everything makes sense with what it is. Uh, and it, it, it's a way that um, when you're playing the game, you can think, oh, I want to run on that wall. How does that work? I can probably figure that out without having to look it up. And then you'll go back and look it up and go, yeah, yeah, I was right. Yeah, that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, and we sort of built the rules around that sort of idea that everything should be obvious and everything should be what you expect it to be as an extension of another rule. This comes from an extension of uh, playing so many demos of different games over the years. And yeah. Carnivale came after we'd, we'd been demoing Rumbleslam for two years at that point. Um, and we knew, sort of, I, I've done hundreds and hundreds of demos in my time at the company. I've probably played more games of Carnivale than anyone else, um, yeah. but only with the same six models. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're really good with them. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we sort of saw how people reacted to certain rules and which things trip people up and I, i'm sure you right. know every time you play a new game you get things that you're like well so I, I don't understand how that might make sense yep. and occasionally you'll get that and then it'll click and you go oh no i get i get it um and we try to make sure that all the rules in carnivale follow that format and so you'll see 
multiples of the same sort of thing over and over, even in different contexts. So um, for jumping, for example, you roll a certain amount of dice and you get two inches of jump plus a number that you rolled. Um, and then for drowning someone, you get two points of damage plus the total of damage of dice that you rolled. Um, for grappling someone, you throw them two inches plus that that you rolled. And we tried to make sure that everything works together so that, like I say, even if you are doing something you're not completely comfortable with the rules for, you can guess what it is and you'll nine times out of 10 be right. 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 Because, because there's, there's a consistent, a consistency throughout it. Right. And a familiarity that comes from that. Yeah. So that, that's got to be a huge challenge, Lewis, from a design perspective, because you have a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. So you have um, the, uh, you know, tight but simplified rules. And an example of that is uh, Marvel Crisis Protocol. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that game at all, but it is um, what those guys did there is they said, OK, look, this is not a simulation. Right. What we've got is a whole bunch of superheroes and we're going to make rules that you don't have to spend all your day in the rule book with. And the game is going to move along. But there's some abstractions. Right. So there's going to be some times when you look at the models and you go, well, he really shouldn't be able to see him. But we've simplified line of sight. So it's going to. So you, they walked away from that simulation and just say, we're going to keep things very tight and streamlined. Then you go to the other side of the spectrum and you find like infinity, which infinity is very much a rules heavy um you know, simulation type things or silhouettes and, you know, just the whole thing. And it takes, you know, five pages of rules to figure out how to move from this point to that point. Um, and it sounds like um, the original version of Carnival was leaning more towards the that infinity side, right? With all of that, you know, multiple options and, you know, spending so time with the rules. And it sounds like you wanted to move it more towards the streamlining. Was that a burn it all down process? Did you guys just say, look, we need to start over? Or was it just a cutting process? So how did you get from the rules you inherited to where they are now it was definitely a cutting process like we 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 started off with what was good about it cut out all the stuff that didn't matter and kept the things that were core to the rules um, i think um probably the most important rule in there the golden rule it's the first thing that you read when you start reading the rule book um is that if it's cool let your opponent do it and this is different it's going to be very different for you Craig, from malifaux like it, it, it's very much a narrative <laughs> game um, yeah you can play Carnivale competitively, um, but whilst you're playing competitively, like you want to win, but you need to make sure that everybody in the game is having fun and everybody can do the things that they think are cool. Um, so yeah, the ve- literally the first rule in there is if someone if if it's cool, let your opponent do it because next turn you'll want to do something cool that they should let right. you do. Um, so we start off with that. Right. And what sounds like one of the goals, and this is a, uh, I love this as a goal is you're trying to create those moments, right? Moments that, that, that stick with you. And um, yeah. I've had this conversation several times uh, with designers where nobody remembers you rolling four sixes six months ago, but somebody will remember that time where you grabbed the guy, you ran across the canal, you, di- you know, threw him into the wall and he, you know, <laughs> this happened and that happened. And it's just this epic cinematic moment that really miniatures and role-playing games are the only two things that really give you those moments mm-hmm. where you just you have an entire movie sequence that goes through your head so it sounds like that that's one of the goals for Carnivale is to create create that type of thing yeah it's it's just about telling a story with your opponent um there's when we do demos for the game there are two moments in the game that will nine times out of ten we'll sell it if i've done my job properly right <laughs> we'll sell the game and the first one is the capa de china um who's the um assassin's creed kind of looking guy with the swords and the hood 
he jumps off the rooftop and kills someone from above. And when you do that, and when you attack someone from above, you get a minus five to their armor save. And usually five is a good armor save. So generally speaking, you right. get no protection roll at all. Um, so you do that and your opponent goes, oh, um, okay, that, that, that was horrible. I'm like, yeah, sorry, I didn't tell you about that in advance, but yeah. And the second bit is when sort of one of the lesser Ugdrews, which are the these sort of Lovecraftian fish monsters. And you go, do you want to get your own back on that guy? You go, yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, throw him in the canal and drown him. They go, what, you can nice. drown people in the canal? I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course you can. <laughs> oh, That's okay, cool. this is a different game. This is, this is not the game that you expect a sort of small-scale skirmish game to be. It's very much, it is, it is Venice the game. It really is. So um, any good game, and I don't care if it's a board game, um, I don't care if it's one of those you know simple streamlined games I talked about or one of the simulation RPG type games I'm talking about, one of the biggest things that defines a game is, is decision making, right? We, we want to be making decisions. We want those decisions to matter. Um, in your head, when you think about it for players, what are key, deci- key points in the game where, where decisions do matter um what where what's the difference between winning and losing as far as pe- player agency is concerned more often than not the difference between winning and losing is using the movement of your force properly um uh, it's making sure that you're in the right place at the right time and with kind of you, you play on a typically a three foot by three foot board so it's not that big and a lot of the scenarios in the book play on two foot by two foot which is even smaller yeah. like it, it's not and you can't escape very far um but within that you can get from one side of the board to the other in an activation if you if you move properly um so you can you can walk along the ground or you can run along the ground and you move your sort of movement in inches and that's fine or you can jump from the ground onto a balcony um use that to get an extra jump across onto the roof run across there and <laughs> so land on cool. someone from the other side like it, it is exactly as you'd expect it to be like the cooler that it is the more more rewarding it is not just in telling your story but in actually winning the game as well um we always say whenever someone says, "Oh, can you do this?" You say, "Yeah, yeah, you can do that." And remember, um, like, fortune favors the bold in Carnival. Yeah. So long as yeah. if if you try really hard, there's a chance that every single person is going to be able to do is going to be able to make a difference. Um, one of the big changes we made from the previous edition of the rules was that protection values before were a static number. If you if I've done three damage to you and your protection is two, you only take one damage. Um, and we changed that to make protection values a roll instead. So you've got right. the roll, your protection value to try and save. And it's a tiny little difference. Um, and we ended up upping everyone's protection by a certain amount to make sure that on average, you end up with about the same amount of thing but it means that even a lowly slave can take on sort of the biggest creature in the in the game and actually do damage to it or have a chance of doing damage to it and that's important because it means that no one's ever going to be stuck in a corner and just be like oh well i, I physically can't win that, yep. that's not good that's not fun well, you know, one of the biggest things that's happened to me, Lewis, in the last year that I've been doing this Insider Insight and talking to people that are involved in making games is my understanding of perception has changed a lot. So I originally was a get as much RNG out of the game. I want I want player decisions to determine who's going to win, not rolls of the dice, flips of the cards. Um, I am learning um, how important that variability can be to this, the the success and love of the game. And I think what you just talked about is very interesting because it's a perfect example of where, yeah, so we 
added some variability, right? So it, before it was static, you knew what it was. You had a protection of two, and that's what it was going to be. And when you went into a confrontation, you knew you were walking in with two. Now you guys have added some randomness to that. But what has it done is it's opened things up. It's made things more epic, more exciting. It's allowed the smallest guy with the last gun to shoot uh, the huge tyranid monster, right? And have yeah. one of those epic type moments. Um, so that's fascinating. Now, something, Lewis, when we were talking about movement before that I want to get back to, and you hinted at, at it was some of the design challenges um, mm-hmm. that you've encountered with Carnivale. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. So now that we understand what your what your goals are, what you're shooting for, what a great Carnivale game is in your mind, from a design perspective, what are some of the challenges that you guys have come across or are still dealing with? So absolutely the biggest challenge was jumping when we started. And that, like I say, there's, there is a reason why people don't have heights and jumping and falling in games very often because yeah. it's so so hard to make it right um, yep. we needed to make sure the jumping was useful um but not as sort of it didn't average out as well as walking but you can make sure that you can jump and it will go well and if it doesn't go well then you fall um and if you fall then it does the amount of damage you expect it to um yeah just making sure that jumping worked and it, it's a very strange thing you think oh yeah you just you know, you just do jumping and, and the way the rules are now, you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's that's an obvious way of doing it. But jumping went through probably six months worth of revisions to make it right. I bet. I um, bet. Yeah. And, and a big it, part. It's a big part of the it, game. It, it's a huge part of the game. And it's making sure that it feels right. It feels epic, but also it's it's right for what you're doing. Um and it it needs to be you you don't need to you don't want to have anyone that can jump farther than they can walk every single yeah. time. Um but you want to make sure that you can make it across the distance. Um, yeah, every, everything needs to be like that. And it also needs to be not complicated. We end, we end up going through several variations where if you jump this far, then you get this. And if you jump this far, then you get this. And if you fall this far, it's this. And we sort of we had a real, really annoying point where if you're jumping down from a building and you make it part way and then you start to fall, how much damage do you take? Do you take the difference in the height and then you have to work out your trigonometry of if you've gone diagonally? And so we end up right. saying you know what, if you've jumped off a building and you don't make the distance, then you fall from the top of the building because that's yeah. what gravity is. That makes sense. Um, but it took us a long time to get to a point where that was the way of doing it. So yeah, jumping in 3D space is extremely tricky to work out. Well, and, and again, another example of what we're talking about where that that pull, right, of simple, oversimpl- not oversimplifying because that, that indicates you went too far, but that simplification for the purpose of gameplay versus the simulation, right? Um, and and that, that pull back and forth. Um, but if you've got the right uh, overarching goal set and you stick to it, um, it can help guide you. So, Lewis, for somebody listening right now that says, you know what, I want to I try this game out. Um, what, what, is, what is kind of the best entry point? Uh, what's the best way to kind of get started? So when we did the Kickstarter, one of the core reasons we did it, not just for relaunching the model range, but was to do a two-player starter deck. Carnavalia never had that. There was, there's this big, thick rulebook, um, but you had to digest that and then buy your models yeah. and buy your scenery and all that sort of stuff. And we all know that like buying a new game, particularly with buying scenery, and Carnavalia is not light on scenery. Like We're not going to pretend that, oh, you you don't need anything to play. Like You do need scenery. That's part of the game. Um, yeah. But we don't want it to be a barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. So the two-player starter set has two gangs in it. It has um, the guild and the rishar. The guild is sort of um, they're like the mob, but a bit worse, essentially. Okay. <laughs> if if you pay your ties, then they'll probably leave you alone. But if not, then they're going to knock on your door in the middle of the night and say, "Look, you've got to come out and fight with us." Um, 
and if you don't then they're worse than the fish people they're going to be fighting against um <laughs> and yeah the rashara this these sort of lovecraftian fish monsters um who have come through the rent in the sky which is our big sort of instigating incident um within carnivale it's this right. sort of vast astral tear um which has opened portals to magic and the rashara are sort of sneaking through into it um so yeah you get two starter gangs in the two-player set um you get the full rule book which yeah you've seen it it's massive yeah <laughs> it's, it's gorgeous yeah it's it's and within that rule book i mean um like 90 percent of it is background information is his story mm -hmm. um and the actual rules are fairly straightforward and simple it's sort of a dozen pages and you'll you've got everything you need um and then there's also all the scenery that you want as well in a two-player set and that was something that we really really pushed for with the kickstarter um that we needed it to make sure that when you bought the box you didn't then have to go and buy mdf scenery i mean do buy mdf scenery for listeners like that, <laughs> that pays my bills that's great but sure, you don't have sure. to you, you absolutely don't yep. have to the, the box comes with tiles um for making a board it's nine one foot by one foot tiles and they're double-sided so you get loads of variation with it um and yeah loads of buildings that you can play on as well different heights so yeah we wanted to make sure that everything was in there um and yeah i think i think it's a great set it, it's it's something that so many people when they come up to us at shows they say oh well, how do we get into it so you say this is the box and they're like oh great and i'm like no no like hold on to it for a second they catch it go, oh wow <laughs> this is heavy and like yeah yeah no and it's something that not many other companies do no, it's impressive. And um, yeah, I think the only other company that's come close and it's not even comparable is uh, what Steamforge did with the Guild Ball yeah. um, with those kickoffs, um, which is one of the few times where it's like, no kidding, you can play. You can open this now and you can play. And it's the same thing is true of the of the starter set you're talking about, but really a whole new level because of, of the terrain that's involved there, um, which is great. And and I think I, I like that decision because it's obvious how important the terrain is to the game. And it would be disingenuous to send set to sell a starter set and not provide that terrain because even as a war gamer, you may not have the terrain that's going to fit and, and make the game as fun as it could be. Um, so again, another, I think another bold decision um, that seemed to went well. So for people that listening um, Lewis that are already fans um, or those that might get into it, can we talk about um, kind of the future plans? Um, yeah, so is sure. there anything that's on the horizon we should uh, think about? Yeah, we um our plans have already been scuppered this year, of course, as everyone's had. Yeah. Um, so things are all over the place at the moment. But the thing that we're working on at the moment is our first um like campaign expansion book for Carnivale. Um, it's called Blood on the Water. Um, it's part written. I haven't finished my part yet, so that's that's on me. <laughs> um, Too busy being on stupid podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it, it's a full new campaign expansion. Um, it's mostly story driven again um because we want to carry on the world of carnivale we don't want it to be a static thing it did at the moment um the rule book sort of there's a timeline of events in the main rule book which finishes january 1st 1795 um blood on the water will probably do all of 1795 um and then nice. on a little bit longer so we get quite a lot of information in there um we haven't released too much about it at the moment but i'm sure well i'm no one's here to tell me off so i can probably tell a bit more than usual um <laughs> But the, uh, all the factions are represented in there, and there's a huge push for new miniatures in there as well. Um, so at the oh, moment, nice. we've, been releasing, we've been releasing things from the Kickstarter and additional models every now and again, sort of boost up sort of the boxes to make sure that the retail offering, offerings are really, really good. Um, mm -hmm. But when we hit Blood on the Water, I think every single miniature in there um, for probably a year and a half afterwards is going to be brand new. 
Wow. Um, and there's there's really, really cool stuff. It, it's There's lots of stuff in there that's going to go in directions that people really don't expect. Um, we got, we've got a really active Facebook community group, um, and a lot of people are like, yeah, we need more of these. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> <they're getting." laughs> um, but in addition to like the background stuff, there's new rules in there as well. And the new rules are something that, again, it we've we've come across this this new element that we added to the game, which is something that none of us knew was missing from the core book until we started playing it. And now, like we we're still early play testing because we got those sort of rules sort of very much penned down just before COVID hit, and yeah, it, it's hard to play test when you're all at home. Um, but yeah, there, there's definitely stuff in there that after you start playing with it, you'll wonder how you were playing beforehand. Interesting. Like, those rules. And, it, and like I say, it's stuff that no one's thought about yet on the on any of our community groups. No one's talked to us about. But like, you guys don't even it. know what you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's, ex- doing, that's exciting. We're doing loads of additional scenery rules. Um, we've taken some of the um, suggestions from the community as well um, with new stuff going in. There's been some really, really awesome stuff going on. Um, I think one of the things I can like point out now that is almost certainly going to make it in there we still got some revisions to do and things so i can't say for certain exactly what's going to be in um but Mm -hmm. someone suggested a really nice mechanic that every now and again you'll make a gang and you'll be a couple of points over um called ducats is the currency um so you either have to take out an entire character and just boost up with equipment or just be like, well, I've got a few points over. Is that all right? And no one likes doing that. Um, so right. there's this new mechanic that um, one of our fans thought up that having sort of negative items. So you give someone an item, it's minus a few points um, and it makes you a little bit worse. Um, nice. But it sort of balances things out. And that's a really, really cool. One. And we've, we've made, I think there's, I think there's about 15 of them that we've written. Um, which are all thematic within the world, things that yeah might affect you. That um, yeah, they, they, they make sense within the story. Oh, that's cool, and, and that boy, that adds a ton of flexibility to uh, your crew building at that point, which which is a is, is a huge selling point. Um, so for those of you listening that play uh, Malifo, um there's a couple of things that I think you're going to get turned on by. Um, I, I, I thought it was great that um, it's like, like Malifaux, every character matters. Um, so every model is, is an, a full fledged character. That's not a rank and file type situation, um, which is something that I love about Malifaux. The other thing that I found very interesting um, getting outside of the movement mechanics, which we've already talked about is the scenarios. Um, I thought that the different scenarios were very, very interesting and it wasn't um, just your same wind conditions over and over again, which um, those of you that listen, you know, I talk about modern rule sets. That's one of the things that I, that I require in a modern rule set is I require a game to have variable win conditions. And I, I want to be able to play and win several different ways. Um, it's why I love Malifaux. It's what I find very interesting about this game. Um, so Lewis, um, we obviously will have links to TT Combat um, to the website, um, and I will b- be sure to p- uh, point out the two player starter set. Is there any other plugs or shout outs we need to get out there? Um, we've got a brand new store opened up recently. Uh, so this is a really weird thing that's happened. Um, uh, TT Combat is owned by a parent company, uh, Troll Trader. Um, a lot of people know Troll Trader from eBay and Troll Trader cards and all that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, we've just opened our first retail store. Um, oh, wow. In the middle of Retiring. a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but we were in talks with uh, Jason from Warball, used to be, um, whose shop shut down last year through to some unfortunate situation. Um, and he's managing our store for us in Bromley, wow. in the UK. Um, and that opened about a month ago. 
um, and they're, they're doing fantastically. And one of the most amazing things is we're seeing people going in, picking up the game and posting things on their Facebook pages. Look, I've, I've just picked up Carnival and I've painted all these models or I've just painted all this scenery. Um, so to see all that stuff going on day after day is just amazing. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to plug them. Um, so yeah, you can you can find out all the information. You can Google that stuff. It's nice and easy. Yeah, and I'll link to it too. Um, yeah, Troll Trader uh, and Bromley. Very, very nice. Very nice. Um, well, Lewis, I really appreciate it, my friend. Um, this is a, it took a little bit of time for us to kind of get connected and get things coordinated. Um, and like I said, I really appreciate you sending that rule book. Um, and uh, I'll let you know if, if when I get my first game in, uh, <laughs> because I'm very fascinated by it. Um, but uh, for those of you that listened all the way to the end, I appreciate it. Take care. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch so you don't miss the avalanche of content we create. Links are in the show notes. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest in gaming apparel and gear. There you'll also find the latest information for the U.S. Faux Tour. Find out where you rank in your conference or even in the entire United States. Get those models built, painted, and ready so we can see you at the next U.S. Faux Tour Masters event. Please take a moment to write a review of this pod on your favorite platform. Rating and reviewing helps us find more listeners almost as cool as you are. Be sure to share this feed with all of your friends who love tabletop gaming. Thanks for listening. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. One of our listeners um, uh, reached out to me and um, dropped a bunch of shit. Um, <laughs> one of my listeners reached out to me and said, hey, Craig. All right. Now, who did the art in this book, dude? Uh, oh, so many people. Which ones? <laughs> Which bit of us? I, I mean, that, I got to tell you, I, I was... I was knocked out by this book. It's great, um, isn't it? It's fantastic. Yeah, and I'm and I'm gonna I'm not gonna go into it too much because I want to do it on the show and talk about it because um, it's been a while since I have been wowed, um, and so and this is strictly just from a graphic design mm-hmm. art perspective. Um, it's gorgeous. So um, I just wanted to find out whether I need to be tooting your horn out of the gate or if it's a team. It sounds like I mean, it's I, a team. I've got one piece of art in there, but I'm not telling you which because it's not okay. great. <laughs> The case is the one I hate. <laughs> hey, look, everything except page 49, dude. Who the hell do that? <laughs> All right, I'll bring us back. The, it's it's completely different to, right. to Blood Bowl. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, one second. I'm getting low on battery. <laughs> oh, we got to plug That's in. not good. <laughs> I'm plugged in already. Did it dis- the power supply sometimes gets disconnected yeah, I halfway? Yeah, I took it downstairs and went upstairs again. Sorry, Craig, bear with That's me. That's all right, man. Let's that in. That should hopefully be working. One moment. 
There we go. All fine. You good? Okay. Yeah, all good. All right. Um, all right. So I'll I'll kick us off again. Yeah. So the boss man says, "Hey, let's make." that many of you have heard of. Now, in the four in his four years of TT Combat, he worked uh, as... Oh, I fucked that up. Hold on. All right. That was cool. That's the first... You're the first terrain guest I've had, so mm. you've answered all kinds of questions for me. <laughs> all right. Um... Any big key things I want to make sure we cover in Rumble Slam? Um, uh, not really, to be honest. It, it's right. such a simple game. And, um, we'll go into a bit about why it was designed, I think, is yeah. probably one of the most interesting bits. Okay, that's how, that's how I'll start it off, and we'll uh, mm-hmm. you'll teach me all about it. All right. <laughs> all right. Um, probably won't go super long on it because we covered a lot in Rumble yeah, Slam as far as the process. So let's just let's just make this a quick pitch on Drop Zone. Um, and I'll probably start with um, now. Is this one that was acquired or designed in house? Yep, acquired as well. Um, Rumble Slam is our only proper original game. Got it. Okay. you still here look uh the podcast is over and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers well i mean if you're here might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it on whatever platform you're listening to i do appreciate you sticking around take care